This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. I am here as always with my lovely brother, John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. That's right. I called you lovely. I, I, you lovely. Know, I'm not ashamed I'm not ashamed to do that. You're a beautiful man. Well, and I'm only sad that our viewers, our listeners, can't see the visage that the that, love, the that, that our guests and I are, are are treated to the luscious locks and the yeah the <laughs> the whole Duck Dynasty beard thing you got going. That's great, man. But we uh <laughs> we are back with another episode of of this is not church, and we are uh man we're just we're just have pleased as punch, John. Are we not happy as clams at high tide, as they say? As um, they say, have, as they say to have our, our guest with us, for, back with us for the third time, actually. Yeah, because we, we we had him on uh, really early on the podcast with Brad Jersak to talk about the book that they co-wrote. And then we had him on by himself a little while later. And then here he is, William Paul Young, back with us again. And again, not to blow smoke, but you know what? I, I feel like it's important to give honor and credit where honor and credit is due. And so uh, speaking for myself, and I think I can speak for John as well, and probably millions and millions of other people around the world, Paul's writings have been some of the most influential uh, in my life in helping to reclaim and uh, reaffirm an image of God that I believe that religion has very, very tried, tried desperately to steal from us and, and paper over with other performance-based garbage. And so I'll let Paul speak to that for himself, but we're just super happy that he's, that, that he's, that he's willing to come on the podcast. We, we never take that for granted or lightly. We're, we're, uh, we're very, very appreciative. So welcome back to the podcast. William Paul Young, how are you, sir? I am very well and honored to be with you. And, and so the folks out there understand this is take two. The last time you blew smoke, <laughs> the technology went crazy. And that's uh, right. Well, so, now we know it wasn't just the smoke because we didn't crash and burn this time. Yeah, well, there's grace upon grace. There we go. And there's still time for it to crash and burn. <laughs> we, have, we leave lots of room for that to happen. So There is indeed. Now, honored to be with you guys. We appreciate you, man. So uh, we tried this once before, and you were on a roll. So I want to see if we can get that roll back. Um, for those of you who do anything like this, you know we are always at the mercy of technology, uh, especially when you have people who are scattered all over the country. I'm in, I'm in West Texas. John's in Northern California. And Paul, I assume, are you in, in Oregon? Are you in Canada? No, we're uh, just uh, north of Portland, Oregon, and uh, which is southern Washington. Absolutely, so we, Columbia River divides us. Oh so, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure if we ever mentioned. John and I grew up in Northern California and have family in that area of, of Oregon. And then my grandparents moved all over Oregon when we were kids, and and Washington as well. And so that's home for me. I always sort of considered myself more Oregonian than Californian, just because Northern California, the part that we're where John and I grew up, <laughs> it, it, it has way more in common with Southern Oregon than it, than it ever did California. So it's just, 
I always felt like home. I've considered myself an honorary Oregonian, even if they would never claim me in return. <laughs> yeah. The Pacific Northwest begins in Northern California. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. I, I agree with that. A lot of times people go, oh, Pacific Northwest. And they think Seattle. I'm like, yeah. And I love Seattle. And I love, you know, I, I just love all of it. But John and I, as we were, you know, both growing up and then even once we got married and had kids, we always take our kids up the coast. You know, that's one of our favorite, my kids' favorite trips is to just get on Highway 101 and just shoot up the coast and see what there is to see. And so well, we love it. It, but. it includes British Columbia too, because that, that's where my family is. They're all yeah, that's where, uh, that's where we need to get back to. Last time my wife and I were in that area, it was the middle of COVID and we couldn't cross the border. And we were none too pleased because we were just going to make a beeline and see what we could see. But we were talking before we got interrupted by technology snafus about the pandemic and, and sort of some of the things that that has afforded us to do. And so I turn it back over to you because you were making some, some excellent points, I thought. Yeah, you know, things like the pandemic, obviously God's a redeeming genius. You know, I was talking to a bunch of kids, a bunch of my grandkids, and we have 15 of those, ranging from 15 years old all the way down to mm, almost eight months. And, uh, and we're not done yet. Our youngest son's getting married next summer, and some of the others still want kids. And, um, but we're having a little class, a uh, Zoom class during the pandemic. And um, I started with the question, do you think that God did the pandemic, that he was the one who caused the pandemic? And uh, they went, no, no, because they all know that God is good and doesn't do harm. And so I said, so where did it come from? And the immediate religious response that they're already inside of is, well, Satan. <laughs> yes. And I said, you know, I don't think Satan's a creator, really. And then, you know, they had this moment of trying to figure out what in the world. So I said, you know, without viruses, human beings couldn't live on this planet. And in fact, nothing could live on this planet. We would be one huge microbial soup because one of the things that viruses do is they take apart uh, microbes. And if they didn't do it, we wouldn't have a water cycle. We wouldn't have, you know, everything would turn to mush. So God creates the virus, and we just think that the virus is all bad. But I said, I think that the reason why it's been such a problem is that we as human beings have forgot to love well. We don't love each other well. We don't love the planet very well. And in a world where God submits to our greed or stupidity or whatever you want to call it, these things get out of hand. And so, no, God doesn't cause the damage and the harm, but God climbs into it as a redeeming genius. There's been a lot of good things that have been part of the pandemic. And one of them is that it's been such a great exposure to the fear within us. There's always been this fear that resides a little beneath the surface and things like pandemics or controversy or conspiracy theories or the evening news, it really doesn't matter. It just ends up exposing our fears. And uh, fear is, is the opposite of trust. And fear is a response when you don't believe you're loved. There is no fear in love. And that's First John. It's talking about God who is agape, who is love. Not just any kind of love, but other-centered, self-giving, co-suffering love. And, um, and so there is no fear in love. And since we're all created in love, 
and we live and have our move and move and have our being because of love. We have to turn our face away from it. We have to believe that we're alienated from that love in order for fear to have ground in us. And so the pandemic exposed a lot of the fear that needs to come to the surface so that there's a possibility of healing because the unexposed is the unhealed. So here we are in the middle of a, quite a mess, you know. Uh, well, the, other, the other thing you said um, that I thought was so compelling was that it also allowed us the time to slow down enough to contend with that fear when yeah. ordinarily our tendency would be to rush past it, right? Get on with the busyness of life. And we didn't have that option. Yep. And like you said, we have a very busy life that creates a lot of push for us. And, um, and so we do. We ignore all kinds of things that, that are harmful in our lives, are harmful in our relationships. We just move on to the next thing. And, uh, and, and we recommit ourselves and try to start over. You know? Well, it's, and, uh, I, I, I find that interesting because you know, I, I work in the retail industry and I have pretty much my whole life. And this idea that the people who were the most outspoken against all the, the protections that we put into place, right? So with this idea of fear, um, it seems interesting that maybe they didn't want to stop and look at their own fear because they were wanting to push forward and push through and tell us that we were, you know, you know you've heard all the things that we were called, sheeple, uh, <laughs> that, we, that, we lived in, that we lived in fear, right? And maybe, maybe in the reality of it, what it was, was they, were, they wanted to move past their fear so they could get back to what they call, and I'm putting this in air quotes, uh, back to their normalcy, which is yeah. so they could ignore their fear. And so some of us who are living in that day-to-day, right, that we are living in this day-to-day, you know, just the simple stuff of you know, putting on a mask, making sure you wash your hands, you know, all that, you know, staying distanced, all that kind of stuff. And then you have these people that were pretty angry and pretty outspoken and pretty loud about their stance. And maybe it was like you said, maybe it was that they didn't want to slow down because if they slow down, they have to face their fear. Right. And I think fear is an underlying presence for most of us. You know, it has, it has been in my life. And what it does, it pushes you in the direction of control. And uh, when control becomes an issue, you know that you're not staying present to love and, and you can't trust, right? So I'll give you an example. So about, now been about a year because Evie is now eight months old, but uh, our daughter was pregnant with Evie and, and she, she had a nudge in her heart that she did not want to take the vaccine as a pregnant mom. And, um, and I'm a missionary kid, man. I've been vaccinated for everything and, you know, and the whole plan. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like, oh, another vaccine, shoot me, you know? And, uh, so I come from that world and, you know, and I've been reading up on, cause there's nothing like information to really spur assholeriness. And, uh, <laughs> sure yeah. enough, a little, a little bit goes a long way, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's what we do to substitute for trust, right? We just, we grab onto information. And, um, so I've been reading about uh, information about the vaccine and pregnant women. And, and the information I was reading was very strong that the vaccine was safe and it was really good for pregnant women to be vaccinated. And, um, 
And so armed with that information, and my desire for the best for my child, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's important because a lot of people's playing the role of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives comes from good intention. You know, and, and, and uh, as an aside, we tend to trust the Holy Spirit in the lives of strangers much more than in the lives of those that we actually love close up. And it's a crazy thing. So um, my daughter and her husband were in, in the pool and I come over and start, you know, trying to communicate the truth to my daughter who, you know, cause I'm concerned for her. I'm concerned for the baby. I'm, you know, and, uh, the conversation begins to be a little, well, fair bit of tense. <laughs> and, and at one point I say this, I turn to her husband and I say, this baby is as much yours. Why don't you do something about this? Ooh. <laughs> and I turn to my daughter and I watch the tears run down her face. Here's the asinine, I mean, the really deep, hurtful part. For a half an hour, I kept justifying what I had done, right? That I had, that I was doing this for her benefit, that it was in her best interest. And it took me half an hour before my heart broke. And I realized, oh my gosh, there was no trust, no trust in her, no trust in the presence of the Holy Spirit in her life. I was playing the Holy Spirit instead of trusting the Holy Spirit. And I had done harm. And I had to go to both of them and ask for forgiveness. You know, and they're, they're much more willing to forgive me than I am. And, um, you know, because I've got a history of shame is, and perfectionism that as soon as you aren't perfect and have done something screwy, then you've got a massive information that will tell you what an ass you are. Right. And, um, and, and, but, you know, I can say that it has, that it has been the last time in my relationship with my daughter that I have tried to play the Holy Spirit in her life. And, you know, where did that come from? Well, it came from, you know, being concerned. I mean, we can baptize fear in a million different ways, but it's still fear. And fear has this way of, I, I call it future tripping. It'll push us out of the presence and into some place in which we think there is no God. Because the presence of God is in the, is in the now. It's not in some future imagination. This is all Jesus language, right? Take no thought for tomorrow. It's got enough issues of its own. And you don't get the grace today for something that doesn't exist. You won't even, you don't even know if you'll be alive by tomorrow. Right. And we create all these agendas and all these plans and all. I, I have another very dear couple in, from Michigan and they have, uh, I know their family well and they know our family well and, and, uh, one, and they're younger. They're, their their kids are, Teenagers, basically. And um, so I get a call from the husband one day and he says, Paul, would you call my wife? Because she went to the doctor the other day and she got a diagnosis, actually four different possibilities, all of which were life-threatening situations. And she has been spiraling out of control. 
And, um, and so I said, sure, I'll call her. So I give her a call and we start talking about our kids and stuff like that. And, and it's in the middle of the day and she finally goes, Paul, why are you calling me? <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't tell you right off the bat, but I'm calling you to help plan your funeral. Oh, <laughs> and she starts laughing and she says, my husband called you, didn't he? <laughs> I said, so I thought it would save you a lot of time. We could figure out, you know, the music that you wanted and who you wanted to invite and who you wanted to speak. And she just started laughing. And she says, you know what I've been doing for the last two days? I said, I can imagine. She goes, she goes I have been researching on the internet everything about these four diseases. And and I have gotten no sleep. It's just put me into a hole. And I said, yeah, because we think information will give us control. We live in an information age. And we think that if only I had enough information, and that would give us control. And um, And it's so true. Turns out that she doesn't have an issue with any of the four of them. But it took two days out of her life. You know? Absolutely, yeah. And I said... Come back into the embrace. Come back into the present. My my wife, uh, this has been quite a few years ago now, my wife was having some medical, and so she went to the doctor, uh, which is a shock in itself. My wife is someone who doesn't like to go to the doctor. So she, her going to the doctor is, okay, something's up. And she went to the doctor, and I came home from work, and my wife was just a complete and utter mess. I'm like, well, what, 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 what do they say? And they said, well, it's one of two things. I'm like, okay, well, what are the two things? I either have anxiety, like severe anxiety, or I have a brain tumor. Like, that's the two options they gave you, and then they let you leave. Knowing that you might have anxiety. (laughs) Knowing that you might have anxiety. But giving you something to be super anxious about. The, the The binary of this is you either are dying of a brain tumor, or you have such anxiety that you can't control it. And and then they sent her on her merry way, like she's going to be able to go home and live through either one of those diagnoses, which turns out uh, she didn't have a brain tumor. And much like quite a few of us who I've also been diagnosed with anxiety and severe depression, that's what it is. But we live in this world where doctors just want to give you facts and they don't want to give you help. And so that's where... You know, I, I, I understand that we want it. We want a doctor who understands and can do medicine, but at the same time, this idea of bedside manner does, does speak volumes to someone who actually gives a shit about you as a, as a human being, which is, I think, what you're talking about here, right? It's like, yeah, the, the, the result of this could be horrendous, but do I, why do we have to come at it from that point of view? Why can't we come from it from a human, human, side and say, okay, let's, what can we do now? How can we move forward? Regardless of what the outcome could be like, and in your friend's case, it turns out to be none of the four, but we were right, telling that you, you're planning her funeral. Did that kind of jar her out of that? Like, okay, wait a minute, hold up. <laughs> because it was future tripping, you know, yeah. and future tripping is the basis of, I don't know what percentage, but a real high percentage of all anxiety. Oh yeah. We, we're here present with love, a love that has 
totally embraced us, who only wants the best and will only do the best, right? So in order for us to fear, we've got to leave this presence. And there's never been separation. God will go with us. I mean, we can't get away from this, from this relationship, but we can sure turn our face away from it and, and experience the sense of alienation, right? right. You think about, well, how about this? This is, this is a great example and one that's very present. Somebody will say, what if somebody breaks into your house is going to rape your wife and kill your kids? What are you going to do? Well, we've created a hypothetical situation in which there is no God, right? And so even the bedside manner of a doctor won't help if it pushes us, if we're already pushed through our anxiety or whatever into a scenario in which there's no God. Because in that scenario, there's no God. And so what do you have? You only have your resources. So you're separated. You don't have a God there. You're alone. You only have your resources. So what are you going to do? We need to go buy a gun. Because because fear, which drives you out of presence, not actually, but drives you into alienation and into a state of aloneness, will always lead to violence. It will lead to violence in thought, in word, or in deed. And it's like, no, we gotta, we gotta deal with this fear. Uh, 365 times in scripture, it, it says, fear not. And most of them says, cause I'm with you. Fear not. I'm with you. So turn your face to me. In this moment, do you have enough? In this moment, are you surrounded by enough? In this moment, don't, don't create an imagination in which, you know, you're all alone because you've never been alone and you're never going to be alone. So stay right here. Stay right here because this is the only real world. Only in this real moment does love exist, hope exist, joy exist. In the presence is fullness of joy. This is the only place where peace is right here, right now. But what if? Stay here. Stop. Do not go into the what ifs because frankly, some brain aneurysm could come by and take you out tonight. I mean, right. seriously, yeah. something that you didn't know. Some car could come across the center line and there's nothing like death to screw up your agenda. <laughs> and so, yeah. so it's like, no, stay here. Don't be considering all the outcomes. Trust me. Trust me. Why would I trust you? Because I love you. There is no fear in love. And the only place that love exists is in the real world, which is only here, only now. It's called eternal life. That's what it's called. And I, I'm not sure if it was, it, it could have been you. I mean, I've, I've seen you speak a couple times, so it could have been you that made this, this comparison. And it was this, you know, this idea of like, um, so we're trying to incorporate this idea of love and that we can reach out in love. And so, which a lot of people look at as pacifism or um, nonviolence, right? So then someone will inherently say something like, well, what if someone comes into your house and tries to murder or rape your wife? And again, if it wasn't you, it was somebody similar to you that says, okay, well, if we're going to go into that weird scenario, which... I have no concept in my life. It hasn't happened in my life. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but 
in my personal life, it's never happened, then I'm going to go ahead and give you the inconceivable, which is that I, I fall down on my knees and I pray to the God and God converts this person on the spot and salvation happens and he, and he walks out of the house and doesn't do anything. Right? Because, well, if we're imagining scenarios, right. why not imagine that scenario? Right. But they give it, they always want to go so binary. They want to say, okay, so you're talking about this nonviolent resistance of Jesus. And then they give you this, this very binary black and white response. And again, I'm not sure if it was you at, when I saw you speak say this, but it was, okay, here's the scenario. Yeah. But both scenarios are imagination. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Take every thought, every, every empty imagination that raises itself up against the knowing of God. Mm-hmm. Why leave the presence of God to create an imagination? Right. What's the point? And it's because we've been trained not to trust. And it doesn't mean you trust in terms of the outcomes because you don't know what the outcomes are. You know, I, I was last year, a year ago, I was starting to have these um, episodes, didn't know what they were, had never experienced anything like them, and had never even heard anybody that experienced them. And uh, the first set of them lasted four days. May of, uh, May of a year ago, a year ago from last May. And, um, and then they were gone. And it was like, wow, that was weird. And it left some residual things, some of which were great gifts. And, um, so then it happened again near Thanksgiving. Then it happened again near Christmas. And then it happened again right at the beginning of February. And every time the, the amount of time between them was shortening up. The duration of the actual episodes themselves were getting smaller, but the after impact was getting longer, harder to recover from. By February, I was with a neurologist because, you know, we went through the whole thing with the MRIs and the EEGs to try to figure out whether there was a brain tumor or not and, um, and, or uh, an aneurysm or whatever. And um, I ended up with a neurologist that lives up near us. And he turns out to be an epileptologist. And he asked me questions for about an hour. And he says, I'm like 90% sure you have epilepsy. And they, they tracked it back to an accident that I was in when I was a pedestrian in my 20s and got hit by a 17-year-old high-risk driver doing 50, 55 miles an hour. And he knocks me two houses down the street and almost killed me. And, uh, and so here I am, I'm like epilepsy. Well, during this entire process of trying to figure out what this was, I had absolutely no fear, none at all, no fear. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that for 20 plus years, this reality of learning how to stay in the presence rather than creating imaginations that don't exist has been a part of my life. I'm not perfect at it. I can still get triggered as the story that, that I told uh, about me and my daughter. But I don't stay there very long and I can, I can get it quicker and, uh, and move back again to, all right, what's here right now? What's actually here right now? And, and is there enough? And am I loved? And am I loved by a love that only wants the best and knows what's going on? Right? So, and I say, well, can God heal me physically? Absolutely. And I've asked for it a few times. And, um, and what's the answer been? No. At least up till today, the answer's been no. 
So what's going on? Well, I know this love only wants the best. So right now, physical healing is not the best. And, and, and we so judge all physical healing, even being raised from the dead is temporary, except for Jesus, you know? Right, right. And we're all deteriorating. This is just a, a point. So on the spectrum of things that need to occur, physical healing may not be near the top. You know, maybe it, and it has turned out this way, maybe it's in conversation with people who are really suffering that there's now a point of identification in those conversations that I did not have before. And that's that's happened. Is that a good thing? Well, it's part of a redeeming genius who's climbed inside this with me. And I know he could heal me in an instant, physically. And I've asked for it, but the answer has been no. Not, not as of today. Today, tomorrow may be different. So I'm looking at epilepsy, which has, which has some inherently great gifts for me. Has, for, by the way. And I'm going like, if you're not going to heal me physically, whatever it is you're doing, and whatever kind of healing you're involved with in my life, I'm all in. I want every fragment of this that I can get. And let me, tell you one of the great um, wonders, one of the great gifts of this. There's two that I can mention. One is epilepsy and the seizure part of this, because I'm on meds for anti-seizure meds and all that. But the seizure part is a constant reminder that the idea of control is an absolute myth. Right? I live with something that at any moment and I've had this happen on the air, right? Where suddenly there's a seizure and it takes me out. I've got to go lay down. I've got to go do these certain things. And so that's one. I have a living reminder that controls a myth. The second thing, and this is remarkable. I never thought this would, that this was going to happen. I am a rationalist. That's the way that I self-protected most, most of my life. I, I ended up being a brain that, that compartmentalized intellectuality from emotion. And I did that because of some of the crap that I went through, my relationship with my dad and sexual abuse and all that. So my defense mechanism was intellectuality. So I hid in the tower of being smart. But at the same time, I had imposter syndrome. It's like they're going to find out that I am not perfect and I don't know everything. Right. And, um, so this was a big thing. And over the course of my life, God has been eroding that wall between my intellectuality and my, and my emotional world. And there has been an erosion. I can so identify when I first married Kim. <laughs> this is, this is a very revealing story. Six weeks after we were married, I went on a hunting trip with a bunch of guys mostly cops and a butcher, which always take a butcher. (laughs) Absolutely. So on on that trip, I had made a new covenant and commitment to always be a truth teller with Kim from this day forward. You know, we're not going to deal with any of the crap from my history, right? We're just going to leave sleeping dogs lie. But from this moment on, I am going to be a truth teller. And I walk into the house and she looks at me and says, did you miss me? 
And I, I had to make a decision. Am I going to start tomorrow to be a truth teller? <laughs> Am I going to actually be a truth teller? And I had been so touched in my heart about learning how to be a truth teller that I made the decision to tell her the truth. And I said, no. And I watched my words do harm and break her heart. And I tried to explain to her that I didn't have a misser. There was no capacity inside of me to miss anyone. You know, with the stuff that happened on the mission field, being sent to boarding school, coming back to Canada, going to 13 schools before I graduated high school, my capacity to miss anyone had been absolutely shattered. And so I, I did not know how to even find it in me. And so I'm like, all right, being a truth teller, you know, you're going to have to figure out how else to, to navigate this world because I didn't want to see that kind of damage. And, um, but it took me years to have that erode and suddenly a misser showed up, right? And I don't know how God did that because we're so incredibly intricately wound and made that only a God who knows us fully knows how to unwind that kind of damage without harming us more. And, but it happened. So in my relationship with Kim, I could feel my love for her. But what epilepsy did, it took that wall that was slowly, slowly eroding and it smashed it. Not 100%, but almost 100%. And suddenly, I was feeling what I know. I know that I love Kim, but now I'm feeling it. I know I love my kids, but now I'm feeling it. And there was this thing about integration between those two worlds. And epilepsy did it. You know, did God cause my epilepsy? No. Did God, was that part of God's perfect plan for my life? Absolutely not. It is part of the decay of a planet in which we do not love well, right? It's not good. And yet God climbs into that which is not good and is a redeeming genius inside of it so that there are gifts along the way and it becomes part of the landscape that good things emerge out of it. And it's the redemption of the losses that we created that would allow epilepsy to come to the surface. So I'm all in. So when people say, well, Paul, how do we pray for you? I go like, I have no idea. You know, ask Jesus. He knows. And um, so again, here you are faced with something that can continually reminds you that control is a myth. And I don't have any fear. I'm not afraid to die, right? I'm not. And that was resolved some time ago. So when you're not afraid to die, you're not afraid to live. And the biggest living part is right here, right now. I mean, my conversation with you, Nat and John, is a result of my whole life coming to this moment of being present, right? Why would I want to be anywhere else? And that includes the hard things like being with my daughter when I break her heart. And I'm like, what was I thinking? I was being driven by fear and thinking that information would give me enough control to convince somebody else. Information never causes transformation, only revelation, only when somebody sees from the inside or they're loved in a way that bypasses the intellectuality and they don't have an answer for it. 
That is, it penetrates deeply. And I think, I think the shack did that. I think the shack hit people in the heart because it's such a human book. And yeah, they, they started wrestling when it hit their heads. But it got through and they can't exactly unsee what they saw in that moment. And then God, the Holy Spirit, begins to climb inside that space and begins to ask the questions that they can't ignore. They can try to ignore, but it's only a matter of time. Well, don't, and didn't, I found it, I found it strange and, and just listening to you talk, this is putting some, putting some clothing on the, on the mannequin, so to speak. So giving some words to this, but I, I noticed that um, once people got through the heart stuff or they tried to get through the heart stuff, that, that wrestling with the head stuff was where the illusion of control came in because the heart stuff pulls you out of that. And now you want to argue theology. And now you want to argue doctrine. And now you want to nitpick, you know, all these little fine points. And, you know, as I'm sure theologians can take your book and they can find points of contention all over the place. But they're missing the forest for the trees, right? I mean, it's like you're miss. It's like you come into this gospel story, and and I, I truly believe we're transformed by story. Um, I'm I'm a hundred percent convinced of it. And so, the stories don't have to be perfect. Um, I could nitpick. I could find flaws. I, I guess you could find flaws in Jesus' stories. You go, well, that doesn't quite make sense. And then and then you find yourself missing the point utterly. In, in, in missing the heart of the story. And, and one of those things that, that, that I was thinking of while you were talking was this, so this, this lie of separation, um, this, this place where we, you know, where we live inside of fear. The other word that keeps popping into my head and keeps coming up in conversation is scarcity. Yeah. The lie lack. of scarcity and lack as though there's just so much and I have to hold on to what's mine. Walter Wink talks about this, and I believe it is in, in his in his trilogy about the powers and so much of and you know coming at it from a from a socio political point of view that this lie of scarcity propels us to do things that are violent and and that that are you know exclusionary to others. But I can see that being an underlying issue, um, whether it's a scarcity of God's ability or willingness to heal. I just thought maybe there's only so much healing to go around and I'm not going to get my part of it. You know, obviously money and food insecurity and all these other things come into play. But yeah, that's, 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 we talked about that just yesterday with the, with the lady we had on who wrote a really good book about the advent and she had been talking about the scarcity concept. But I mean, how does that resonate with you? Does that sound right? Yeah. So it's, it's more than a lie and it's a lie that is birthed out of fear, right? So. Every time you deal with fear, you're being invited to trust. And a lot of times when you're invited to trust, all kinds of fears will show up, right? You see, you see it in the disciples all the time, you know. They're fighting over a loaf of bread when the bread of life is in the boat. <laughs> right. Well, the rich young ruler can't let go of his money when the riches of heaven and on earth are offered to him, right? And, uh, and I'll give you a great example in my own life, you know. When I was going through 11 years of deconstruction, it was a spiral down deeper into the soul. And I like the spiral idea because when you're, when you're in a healing process, you, you, it feels like you're just going around in circles and you, you think you're seeing the exact same territory over and over and over when a spiral is always going somewhere. And, and, and the, the links, the, 
the circles of that spiral may be so close together that it feels like nothing's changing, but it is. You're never the same person two days in a row. And you're never the same person when you're trying to deal with something and you've been failing at it over and over. It's the same territory. So in this 11-year journey of mine, as I went around that spiral, I would keep running into fears. And I had to make choices to trust. And I'm telling you, that was so hard because the things that I had and counted on and trusted, even though they failed me, seemed easier than being loved by a God who, who, who saw me as the center of his, of his care and affection, right? So the, and so I went deeper and deeper and deeper, kept running into these areas of mistrust or fear. I got down to a very, my, the biggest, the biggest one that I had to deal with really down deep in my life. And I don't know, I don't know what that is in terms of the spiral in anybody else's life, but this was a big one for me. And I bet you it's a big one for most people, especially in America. The fear of financial insecurity, right? It was money. And it's, it made sense to me that we would put on our money in God we trust on money, right? That totally makes sense to me because money gives us the sense of control. But the, even when we have it, then the fear turns to losing it, right? So it's all centered in that. So at the beginning of my 11th year, I ran into this and it came from um, a number of years of hiding things from Kim, you know, so I didn't want her to be too concerned about the financial stuff, you know, all the bullshit we tell ourselves to justify stuff. And I didn't want her to be worried, you know, so I yeah, made... You're just, just protecting her, right? Just protecting her. Yeah. yeah. It's for her own good. I got it's it. Exactly. It's, it's, it's such great nobility and it's so much bullshit. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'd made some decisions uh, that got slammed during 2008. And um, and so now it's a few years later. We were buying, owned a house that we had now lived in for 17 years. And I suddenly look. And by this time, Kim and I, man, it's an open book. And I have to tell Kim, we're in a really bad financial situation. And our house is at risk. And... Um, and of course, it made her really thrilled. And, and so, but I mean, we're both in a place where, all right. And, and I'm sitting at my desk at the work that I was doing and I'm looking at our finances and they were really upside down. I'd mortgaged the house a number of times in order to try to stay the perfect husband for Kim. That was one of the motivations. I didn't want her ever disappointed in my view of how I thought she needed to see me, right? And so security was, financial security was part of that. So here I am facing this. And I decided to go on a fast, you know? I used to do that when I was younger, but it was a hunger strike back then. And, uh, you know, part of magic. But now it was like, I need to hear you. I need to hear you. This is such a deep thing, I can't hear you. And uh, so five days, I would start my conversation in the morning with God with, how come I've trusted you my whole life with our finances and we've been up and down and up and down and up and down? Five days, I hear nothing, right? My, 
my internal relationship with God, I've never heard God speak audibly, but I know the voice, right? And uh, because it's way more tender to me than I would ever be. And it's very confrontational too, in a very kind sort of way. So five days. Well, the fifth day, I say the same thing. How come I've trusted you my whole life with our finances? We've been up and down, up and down. And in the silence, I hear, so Paul, are you ready to listen? And I'm like, why do you think I'm fasting, you know? And, and, and I hear, Paul, listen to me. You have never trusted me your whole life with anything, let alone your finances, right? When you've gotten into trouble, you didn't trust me. You manipulated relationships, you shaded the truth, and you lied sometimes outright to cover your ass. And it was a bombshell to me. And I'm, I'm on the floor just crying and crying and crying and crying because it was like the light opened up and I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, I've been lying to God for five days thinking that I was telling him the truth and my whole life has just been revealed to me as absolutely not trusting. And it wasn't trying to shame me. It was trying to expose something because the unexposed is the unhealed. And so now I'm sitting there going like, what do I do? You know, what do I do as an act of trust in the face of this? And an idea came to mind. So I had about a dozen guys in my life at this point, and I knew three of them could write me a check wouldn't harm them whatsoever and knock me out of my situation, right? And so I call each of the guys up and I tell them our, our situation, which having guys in my life that way was a brand new thing for me. I'd never, I was learning how to trust people as well as learning how to trust God. And so I told them, this is our situation and, um, and this is where we're at. This is what we're facing. And then I said to every one of them, please, please, please don't rescue me from this. If you rescue me from this, you're probably going to interfere with God, what, whatever God wants to do in my heart about this. So don't do it. Because I knew I could manipulate the relationship. I knew that I could say the right things. I knew that I had the power to shade the truth in a way that they would emotionally respond to it. And then they would, they would come to my rescue. I knew that. And even if I didn't do that, I knew some of them loved me so dearly, they would come to my rescue. And, and, and I, didn't do, I didn't do this absolutely cleanly. I gave God a little wiggle room. I said, so if God shows up as a burning bush or an angel with a big fiery sword or something and tells you, to help me, fine. But other than that, <laughs> don't rescue me. And this was in January of that year. And that fall, 2004, that autumn, seven of those guys left, got out of work early, unbeknownst to me, and they all showed up at the Clackamas County Courthouse in Oregon City, Oregon, while the court auctioned our house away. And I bawled, not because I lost the house, 
because I had seven guys who would show up and sit with me while my house was auctioned away. And uh, these guys helped us pack up whatever we had left because the creditors took the car, cars and, uh, and then they took a lot of our stuff and, and uh, they helped us move to a little place on Wildcat Mountain Road. And a couple months later, we moved to a little tiny house on the corner of 12th Street in Gresham. And we had nothing. And joy dropped on us like a ton of bricks. And the next two and a half years, my kids would tell you, were among the best years of our lives. And we had nothing. I had to, I was working three jobs, but I could walk to the Mac station and get downtown for my, my main job. And, uh, and we had 15 bucks in the bank sometimes at the end of the month and 35 sometimes. And we were absolutely embraced with joy. And it was unbelievably beautiful. And wasn't it during this time, though? Was it during this time that you wrote The Shack? Yeah, I wrote this it. Because I remember hearing you talk about your, your situation before. So in the midst of all of this... Well, um, in 2005, the next year, I didn't have enough money to give my kids Christmas presents. Right. And so Kim had been saying, you know, someday write a gift for our kids that puts in one place how you think because you think outside the box. So mostly on the train down to my main job, I wrote a book, got it done in time, made 15 copies at Office Depot, and that's their Christmas present that year. Wow. It was the shack. Wow. What I think, uh, I, I just really want our listeners to hear and what I need to hear is that it doesn't always give us the happy ending we think it's supposed to be, right? So yeah, that's future tripping. Right. So we, time and time again, you know, Hollywood shows us that if we do the right thing, we, 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 we toil and we, and we, and we scrape and we, and we climb and we, that at the end of it, the greatness will happen. And sometimes the greatness is the failure of acknowledging that we, can't do this alone. That I think is so much more powerful than this, like pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. I, you know, you know, it's the Hollywood story, right? That you, you saved yourself, that you were able to become the greatest of whatever, right? Fill in the blank. And, but it, yeah. it, it doesn't acknowledge the people that come around you and help you in those dire moments. And it doesn't acknowledge the freedom from the necessity of financial security. I would give up everything to be free of that because it is such an idol and it is such a prison. You know, I don't have the fear of financial insecurity and I have, I have good financial stability now. But if it all went away tomorrow, I'd be fine because I know that I don't trust it. Right. And. And Kim knows, and my kids know, right? So I'm not afraid of some big recession, and I'm not afraid of losing everything, or not afraid. I'm not afraid of that, right? And so I, you know, when I lived in that little corner house, well, you know, we did. I didn't give the book to them till the end of of that year, and we didn't we didn't get it printed until the. Uh, May of 2007. So we lived there. 
inside nothing, right? And, and yet, you know, I'm working three jobs. Kim goes down to the high school bakery and gets a job down there. We have a, a house that's about, I don't know, really tiny. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, 550 square feet of usable space. And Kim starts bringing kids from the high school to fill up our empty spaces. And, and um, I mean, it, <laughs> and we were, we were full of joy and I was content. I was content. And it was like, if this is my life for the rest of my life, I am so good. And you have to keep in mind that I was the firstborn son of missionary kids and a preacher, right? And, and I was the firstborn son with hands laid on him to do something great for God. And it had been, it had been a curse around my neck. And, um, and I was free from that. I didn't ever, I never had to do something great for God. When I wrote this little story for my kids, it was a gift for my kids. The, the reason I made 15 copies at Office Depot was because you get a price break at 15. <laughs> <laughs> and I never, it never even crossed my mind to become a published author. It wasn't on my bucket list. None of that. And, and so I wrote it out of love, 15 copies, did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And I had no future tripping imagination of becoming, you know, a really significant author or an author at all. And then, then how that unfolded was in the grace of each day at a time, you know, because I didn't need wisdom until the day that it happened right? Moment by moment, staying inside this affection and this embrace. And then you get to realize you have an ability to respond to things that are real, not to some things that aren't real. You don't get grace today for things that don't exist, right? And that that allows me to be present. That allows me to be fully present with whoever and whatever is in front of me. And that's where God actually lives with me. Well, and then isn't that the heart then of what, of what Paul says, you know, when he talks about, you know, the other Paul, you're, you're one, you're one great Paul, the other great Paul, learning to be content in all things, learning to, learning to listen, I've, I've had, I've had, and I've lacked. And my content, my contentment is not contingent upon those two realities. Um, in fact, they're not, they're not even realities. The reality is my contentment is a, is a gift from God. It's, it's, it's leaning into the presence of God at all times. And then those other things are just things that happen to me. And they don't have, and I, and I won't give them the power to steal my peace or my joy. My, my wife and I, I'm also married to a Kim. And I have um, done similar things with our finances over the years because I would tell her for the, the same things that you said. I, I just didn't want you to worry. Um, the truth was, I didn't want you to see me as a failure. So I was trying desperately to fix it. I was trying desperately to make sure you never saw that I was mishandling the money, um, that I had tried all these schemes to fix it. And all of my schemes blew up in my face like Wiley Coyote, um, every single one, until they literally blew up in our face and we almost lost everything. Um, and at that point, um, then, then, then she had to know, <laughs> this, this is what's happening and it's my fault. Um, and it was a real, um, it was a real truth telling moment for us. And we'd been married at that point, 25 years. It wasn't like we were young. I'd been, I'd been playing this, this, uh, 
um, this Ponzi game, you know, this sort of shell game with our money for years. That was just my, that was my, my go-to, you know, I'll move money from this place and I'll, 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 you know, get this credit card to cover this credit card and blah, 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 you know. And, uh, there was a point where I, I and the reason I'm saying this is because I resonate with what you said. There was a point where we had nothing. We had the house we lived in, which we thankfully were able to hold on to. And then that was it, man. And then we had to live for the next several years on literally whatever. I mean, there was no future tripping as far as credit cards went. There was no, you know, it was literally, if you had the money for it, you could have it. If you didn't, you went without it. And I tell you what, we learned a lot. We learned how to live in, we learned how to live that. And I think the lesson from that, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe the lesson for you is that as well, where you, why you can arrive at a place where you say, listen, if it all went away tomorrow, I'm okay. Because I learned all that stuff was just superfluous anyway. We did without it before, we'll do without it again. And, and, and so therefore, if, if finances change and suddenly you do have some, I think you, I think you have better tools to handle that. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, like, like I, I put it a little bit different. Sure. I don't care about the future. Uh, you know, I don't care about the outcomes. What I know is, regardless of anything, I will be inside the embrace of love, period. It's not that I have better tools. Because, you know, you can be inside very, very difficult situations that were wrong and that you had nothing to do with. Yeah, for sure. Right? And so I don't know what anything is future tripping wise, but I do know what's here and now. And that's not going to change. I know that I'm loved. That's not going to change. I don't care what comes down the road. That's not going to change. And so whatever does, I'm going to have everything. I'm not going to be lacking. I'm not going to be, you know, and all the details of that will be worked out as it unfolds. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's brilliant stuff. I, that's, I think that's life changing. You know, I, I know it's life changing because what you're saying is resonating. I'm sure John resonates with this as well. And I'm sure people listening at home. Trust is scary as hell. It is. Well, you know, one of the best books I ever read um, on trust was Brendan Manning's Ruthless Trust. And I still go back to that book. Just first of all, just because Brendan always had a, just a way with words. But there was that. I love his juxtaposition of words like that, ruthless and trust. You know, this this idea that this this trust we're called into, it, it brooks no... <laughs> no argument. You either trust or you don't. It's an, it is an all or nothing proposition. Um, and so, you know, for Brennan, it was this act of day to day deciding to live in the now. And like you just said, not worrying about, uh, not worrying about what the future holds, not even caring what the future holds, just learning. And I think that's, that's a, that's, that's probably something that, that as a culture, I think we struggle with a bunch, don't you? I mean, it's just not even part of our culture to live in the now. I mean, we're either consumed with what happened before or we're consumed with what we're planning for the future. And meanwhile, we are just tripping through our present, just missing stuff left and right. If God is present and we're not, then we don't know we're loved. Right. Right? There's no way. So we have fear and our resources to try to combat whatever it is. And now, and now we're in competition. <laughs> because there's, yeah. there's limited resources and there's a limited pool of people that can take this job and there's everything is lacking as, as your friend said and there and then now we're scrambling over you know the bones and uh, fighting over scraps right we're fighting over the over the leftovers from the table when abundance is ours and that's that's the thing i think we're trying to say is that you know when jesus says that he came to bring us life and that 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 life would be abundant 
Um, first of all, I think we've missed what abundance means because we've, we've, we've decided that means material possessions and all kinds of stuff and busyness and activity and all this. Oh, look at how full my life is because my calendar is so full. And, uh, um, I, I can't imagine that's what Jesus means by an abundant life. I think that's one that's fully lived in the present, fully lived in the, in the knowledge that you are loved and that you are present with your creator. I just think that's easier. It's easier said than done. I get that because of all of the pressures that come from every angle. But that's something that I think we can, we can aspire to. And I, I'm, I'm doing better. It's, and it's thanks, you know, again, blowing smoke again. It's, it's thanks to people like you who, who have so eloquently, um, articulated this for us that we go, oh yeah, okay, this is, this is the thing. And, you know, we is actually, we actually used Baxter Kruger's, his one of a line that we found in a sermon once they said that, you know, Western, Western Christianity has been telling us for 2000 years that we're separated from God, you know, cause that's the whole, the entirety of toxic religion is predicated on separation. It's all predicated on a lie that you were ever separate. And what you, the distinction you made between separation and alienation, I think is 100% necessary. Because alienation is how we feel, not necessarily a subjective reality, right? Or an objective reality. It's not just, at all. I mean, and I can feel alienated in a room full of people who love me. It brings to me, it brings to me two, two separate stories that tell me that there is this idea of connection that's so far beyond anything that we can comprehend. So the first is a, a coworker of mine who also um, suffers from seizures. And uh, at first, I was scared shitless because I had an employee, one of my employees, who at any given moment would end up in a seizure at work, right? And the first time it happened where I was involved, there was a moment where we made eye contact as he's coming out of his seizure. And all I was able to say was, I got you. I got you. I don't care what the world, I don't care what the world feels like to you at this moment. I have you. And there was this eye contact moment where he, there was this like, um, this deep soul wrenching breath of, I can relax because not only does this person who has eye contact with, but there's a group of people around him who says, we have you. Where there will be no harm while we are circling you. And the other story is my daughter had just recently moved out from uh, living with us. She moved into an apartment. She had some kind of uh, medical. Uh, it's, I'm not going to go into it. It's actually something that I have similar. She didn't know about it. I had not. In, I had not included her in the story of something that could medically happen to her, which causes this pain within your body as you as you take a deep breath. And I get this phone call at work that says, I don't know what's going on. I don't I I I I need help. I need help. And she's crying and she's and she's bawling and she's scared. And I just looked at my boss, I said, I gotta go. And I left. I didn't I didn't ask permission. I just left. I drove to my daughter's house and I held her as she reached as she as she worked through this pain. And I can explain to her that I have her. That whatever happens, I'm here. I got you. And this is what it's about. This whole idea of like fear can overcome anything is just so much of a, of a, a facade over this idea that we can break through fear through love. 
that we can break through all of this through community and connection and togetherness and letting someone know that I got you. I have you. And that's, that's, that's that moment where everything else just falls away, right? Yep. Even our enemies will tell us the truth when our friends even can't. So just to wrap some of this up, let me, let me finish the story that will kind of, you know, cause I told you about the losses and everything that was all in 2004. And, uh, 2004 for Christmas, I give my kids, you know, we make 15 copies at Office Depot, does everything I want it to do. The kids get copies, my friends get the extra copies and I go back to work. I mean, that was done. It did it. Yay, Christmas. We're off into a new year, 2005. And, um, and so it, the shack did its thing. My friends started giving it away. We make another little collection, make 15 more copies and, on the thing goes, becomes this international phenomenon, right? Um, uh, in 2000, end of 2007, 2008. And, um, and then the end of 2008, it gets taken overseas. It ends up in 50 languages and, uh, and the Germans loved the book. So at one point, the Germans come to me and they say, we want to make a documentary about your life because we, our German readers love to read about the lives of the authors that they like. And, uh, and I say, okay. And, uh, so they follow us for a couple of weeks around Europe when I was doing a book tour with Kim and one of our daughters. And, um, uh, at the end of those two weeks, they say, and Suzanne was the name of the director who, you know, we got to know. And, um, they say, well, we want to send Suzanne over to Oregon in May of 2011. And, um, and they want to do uh, interviews with you, your friends, site locations, all that. But we, but we need a favor. Would you, uh, do you happen to know a videographer in Oregon? That way uh, we can, um, we don't have to send equipment. They'll have all the equipment. They'll speak fluent English. They'll know all the site locations because they live in Oregon. And uh, will save us a huge amount of time and work. And I said, I know one. And, uh, his name's Joe Khalil. He had worked for Channel 8. Um, he'd done a lot of years of Rose Festival videography. He's a professional. He did work for Intel, Nike, and all that. And I, and, um, I said, I know one. And that was true. I only knew one because I don't hang with videographers all that much. He was one of the, he was one of the seven guys that sat with me at the county courthouse when they auctioned the house. And so, I turned him over to Suzanne and they start a conversation about logistics and all this. And I don't know until later that at one point Joe says, Suzanne, I can't do the job. I have, uh, I've, I pushed Nike off. I think it was Nike a couple times for a job that we're doing together and I can't do it a third time. And it's right in the same week that you're coming. But he says, the good news is I know every videographer in Oregon. So I'm, I'm handing you over to a friend of mine named, um, uh, Joe uh, Feltz is his last name. And um, and uh, so Suzanne's now working with with him. And at one point, Kevin, Kevin Feltz, at one point, Kevin says, Suzanne, I'm double booked here. I cannot do that week, but I know you're in a jam. So I'm going to subcontract our contract to another videographer um, um, named... Uh, Kevin Feltz. 
So uh, Kevin Feltz is the third guy, right? So it went from Joe to Bill Dolan. Bill Dolan was the second guy to Kevin Feltz. I don't even know this is going on, right? All I know is that one of the places that they wanted to shoot at right at the beginning was at the little house that we lived in on the corner of 12th Street in Gresham. You know, little rental place. It was about 950 square feet of usable space. That's the one. And, um, and so I had, they said, would you call up the people who are living there and see if we can have permission to film there? And I said, sure. Two single moms. Um, hi, um, this might be a weird question, but there is a German publisher who would like to shoot, uh, some film at your house. Well, why would they want to do that? Well, I wrote a book. It got translated into German and it became a hit over in Germany. Really? What's the book? Die Hütte. It's a German book. <laughs> it's in English. Yeah, it's called The Shack. Oh my gosh, we read The Shack. Sure. Come in. So I'm standing on the porch of this little house and uh, Suzanne's standing next to me and up walks this videographer that I don't know, Kevin Feltz. And, and he's kind of looking around and he goes, hey, Paul, can I ask you a weird question? Like, you know, anything he asks me going to be weird to me. And he, he says, this is, this is May 2011. He says, back when you were living here, you know, Christmas 2005, at Christmas, did you ever have someone slip some money under your door? And I went, yeah, but nobody knows about that. Uh, he said, that was me. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He said, yeah, you know, it was a weird year. Christmas was coming and, and I had this nudge from the Holy Spirit to, to give some money to someone who had nothing. But I didn't know anybody like that. And I was kind of in a jam about it. And I was at Blockbuster picking up a movie for my kids, ran into a business guy who was picking up a movie for his kids, but he lives on the other side of town. A couple of years earlier, we had shared some office space. And I don't know why, but we get into this and I tell him, hey, um, I got this nudge and I'm supposed to give some money to somebody this Christmas, but I don't know anybody like that. Paul, he didn't, he didn't tell me who lived here. He just wrote down an address. And in the middle of night at Christmas, I slipped five $20 bills under your door. And I'm like, who is the guy at Blockbuster? He said, you know, he's a business guy. You probably don't know him. His name is Scott Klausner. Scott's one of my best friends. One of the seven guys that sat with me at the county courthouse in Oregon City when they auctioned off the house. And I'm going like, Kevin, you don't understand. That $100 that you slipped under my door, it paid for some things that Kim and I really needed right then but it gave me the extra money to go down to Office Depot and print the first 15 copies of the shack. And I'm thinking like, you know, here, here this whole crazy thing has happened. And it took a German secular publishing company to decide to do a documentary. And then they decide to do it at a specific time where two videographers had to had to not do it in order for me to meet the man who gave me enough money so that I could give my kids a Christmas gift that year. 
There is a God who is with us, in us, in the middle of everything. A redeeming genius who sometimes does things that we don't even know about and won't know until we're on the other side of the veil. And and this is the love with which we are embraced. That is a perfect way to wrap it up, Paul. It is. Wow, that's amazing. John's, John's wiping tears, I can tell. He's, he's, he's fighting them back. Don't fight them back. It's okay, man. As always, every time we talk to you, it's, 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 it's something new. It's what, what's really interesting to me is and here's, here's a little place of connection for you and I. John and I have family in Gresham. Um, when my wife and I got engaged, um, we wanted our youth pastor when we were kids to marry us. So um, this guy, David, had moved from the church we, where, where we had met. Kim and I met in a church and uh, had been pastoring a church in Oregon City. And so when we, he said, yeah, I'll marry you, but you're going to have to come to my house a couple of times so we can do some premarital counseling. So we did all of our premarital counseling in Oregon City in this little house that, that my friend owned. So that's just a weird, most people don't know, wouldn't know. You say Portland and that encompasses all of that, Beaverton and Gresham and Oregon City and all those little places that we know. Um, but that's, and you were, uh, yeah, wow. So we're all sort of stomping the same ground, kind of going around the same little, the same little uh, tracks together. And that, that, that's amazing. So uh, uh, I don't want to let it, I don't want to forget to mention, I know we're, this isn't future tripping. This is just stuff that is going to happen that then next summer you are having, a, uh, you are hosting an Alaskan cruise. Um, yeah. that, will, that will be amazing. Yeah. So if you've, if you've, if you've lasted this long into the, into the podcast, um, the, the, the special treat is that if you, if you want to book a trip, and go hang out with Paul for a few days and see some of the most amazing stuff you'll probably see in your lifetime on the Inside Passage to Alaska. Um, that's happening, you said, June 6th, I think it starts. It's called, you can find it on theshackcruise.com. Yeah. So it's, I, I'm, I'm stoked. I'm, I'm having, I was telling you offline that I'm like, I'm having to go, well, shoot, I'm booked for something in June. This sounds like it might be better. I don't know. I'll have to talk to <laughs> I, I know which way my wife will choose. It'll be Nashville in June or will it be Alaska? And she's going to go in June in, in Texas. It's going to be a billion degrees. We could be someplace cool <laughs> and, and with some cool folks. She might say, I can be someplace. Yeah, cool. maybe I send her to Alaska and she sends me to Nashville, which will also be likely hot. And no, we've, we've talked about an Alaskan cruise forever. So I showed her, I showed her that a while back and she's like, yeah, we have to make that happen. So, so that, that's coming. Um, obviously, uh, Paul has written more than just the shack. There are other books available. We'll link to all those things in the show notes. Um, if you're not, if you're not aware, if you haven't read, Lies We Believe About God. That's another amazing book. Um, the book that he co-wrote with Brad Jersak called The Pastor is another phenomenal, amazing book. Eve, am I missing anything book-wise? Crossroads. Crossroads. Oh, Crossroads. Yeah, see? See? He's a prolific guy, this guy. This this Paul Young. He's not just a one-trick pony. Um, <laughs> he's, got, he's got chops and he's he's written some cool stuff. And he has really cool friends. He hangs out with guys like Brad Jersak and Baxter Kruger and and other people that we that we know and respect and love. So... Um, one of these days we'll get a, we'd, I think it'd be great to have you and Baxter on together again. Oh, I would so, love uh, to do that. Uh, so if, 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 uh, if, if I don't have any luck reaching out, maybe I'll reach out to him through you and be like, Hey, get on the podcast, you and me and Baxter and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about, I really want to nail him down. He, 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 he teased some, some subject last time we talked about Celtic Christianity and then we went off in a whole other direction and yeah. John and I were just like, wait a minute, hold up, hold, hold come back and talk about that. That, yeah. that sounds amazing. Yeah. So, but 
Anyway, I appreciate you taking the time. I, and uh, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you wrote about my book coming up. That 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 put me on cloud nine for a few days. I was pretty impossible to live with for a couple of days. <laughs> I was like, hey, it's well like, deserved. Oh, I, I appreciate it. you. Uh, you have your fingerprints are all over that thing as well. So um, your influence is is pretty wide, man. I, I hope you know that that we all owe a pretty big debt to you. So we appreciate you, yeah. man. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you very Honor much. To be with you. Much love to you. All right, peace out. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.